Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. BYU English professor Chris Crow is an award-winning author of books for young adults about the civil rights era. He recently gave a couple of talks on the USU campus in Logan as a part of the USU Department of English Speaker Series. Crow is author of several books, most notably Mississippi Trial 1955, which won several awards, including the 2003 International Reading Association's Young Adult Novel Award. His nonfiction book, Getting Away with Murder, the true story of the Emmett Till case, was a Jane Addams honor book. His first children's book, Just as Good, How Larry Doby Changed America's Game, appeared in 2012. His newest book, a historical novel, Death Coming Up the Hill, is about the tumultuous year of 1968. We're going to talk about the Emmett Till case and the new National Museum of African American History and Culture. We'll talk about Larry Doby and breaking the color barrier in baseball. We'll also talk about Professor Crow's family. He and his wife have four adopted children, including two daughters of African American heritage. He says the family has vigorous discussions about race around the dinner table. We're going to Alaska, Professor Crow, whether he gets pushback about his standing to write and speak about the civil rights era and race issues, being a white man from Utah. And we'll also talk about current race issues in Utah and America. We want to talk about uh, civil rights and uh, how you got into writing about civil rights for young adults. We want to talk about writing for young adults mm-hmm. and why you why you chose uh, th- that particular demographic. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, this race issues, civil rights issues, yeah. are an ongoing, um, uh, uh, you know, very present with us. But I want to start with baseball. Okay, we've got uh, Chicago Cubs against the Cleveland Indians. Uh, Chicago Cubs last won the World Series in '08 and uh, Cleveland Indians 1948. You wrote a book for children, I believe, right. about Larry Doby, right. um, who was the second African-American into the uh, major leagues. He, he uh, broke the color barrier in the American League. That's right. Uh, just, I think, a year after, maybe, or after uh, Jackie Robinson? Just weeks, six weeks oh, after. weeks after, yeah. yeah. Your book is called Just As Good. What are you saying there? So one of the things that I'd, I'd never heard of Larry Doby, so one of the things I learned about him was that he... Um, what he said at the end of his life is, who is the second man on the moon? Nobody knows, right? So who is the second African-American? Jackie Robinson overshadows all that. But um, one of the things Doby proved was that African-Americans are just as good as white players. And, and when Robinson came in, the owners, that collusion they had to keep the race, keep the league pure, racially pure, uh, their argument with Robinson was he's a fluke. There's There are no other players in the Negro Leagues who, who are good enough for Major League Baseball, so we still don't need to integrate. And then just six weeks after Robinson, uh, after the opening of the season where Robinson was in the majors, Dobie shows up. But he had the, the sad thing with him is he had no preparation. Robinson had a year in the minors, and he'd gone to UCLA. Dobie had none of that, so he'd hit home run his last game in the Negro Leagues, and that same weekend he was suiting up with the Indians uh, playing a game against the White Sox. And uh, some guys wouldn't shake his hand even in the clubhouse because mm-hmm. the players, they were as surprised as he was. So he had a miserable first year in 47, but in 48, uh, he changed positions from second base outfield and had a great season. And, uh, but what he, what he, the reason he's historically important is he was like the second witness. So Robinson broke the barrier, but they were ready to close it right behind him. But when Dobie shows up and has a great year in 48, taking the Indians to the World Series, it was obvious that he exposed that lie uh, that blacks weren't good enough to play. And then in the in game four, in my children's book, it's just about game four. 
Doby hits a home run that ends up winning the game 2-1. And uh, after the game in the locker room when they're kind of celebrating the pitcher, the winning pitcher's hugging him, and there's a photo of them cheek to cheek. And that photo made people furious. It was in papers. It went, went out on the wire. So it was in papers across the country. And it exposed the lie even again That because the other argument owners made was black and white players can't be good teammates. They'll have fights in the clubhouse. There'll be riots in the stands. And that showed the photo showed, yeah, not only are they good enough, but they're also good friends. They're good enough to be teammates as well. Mm. I was reading a, an article, an interview with Larry Doby Jr. on the occasion – of the Cleveland Indians back in the, the World World Series, um, and and he was saying that uh, he felt like the family more than Larry Doby Senior uh, felt the injustice of that Larry Doby didn't get the credit maybe that Jackie Robinson yeah. uh, did, but I'm imagining Larry Doby did did feel a bit of that. That I was he there was a quote saying that I, I got every bit of the nasty reaction that, that Jackie did. Robinson did. Yeah, no. Doby had, if you if people who've seen the forty two, Doby had all the same stuff. You know, the thrown at his head, sliding high on him, and uh, he one of the minor league games he went to, in, or in the, in the preseason games, uh, in spring training, they were playing somewhere in the south, and of course he couldn't stay with his teammates in the in the same hotel, so he had to get to the game by himself. And as he he's wearing his uniform. And when he gets to the gate to come in, the security guide won't let him in because it's impossible. You can't be, you can't be a player. <laughs> and finally, he had to send for somebody on the team to come and vouch for him that even though he was in uniform, that he really was on the team. But he had all the hate mail, all the threats, all, all, everything that Robinson went through. And um, I don't, I don't know that he was bitter, but he had lots of other seconds. He was the second. African-American manager in Major League Baseball. He was the second African-American to play baseball in Japan. There, He was just right there in all these places and never the first. And I think for me, though, second is maybe just as important because it does confirm things. It does show that progress is being made. Satchel Paige played on that 48 team, too. He signed late in the 48 season and didn't play a lot in the World Series, but played some. And and already that the the dam had been broken with Dobie. They were starting to trickle in now from the Negro Leagues, which ended up killing the Negro Leagues. Mm-hmm. But it sure changed Major League Baseball. By that time, that as you say, the dam had broken. I was I was just thinking nobody remembers number two. I certainly don't know number three. Yeah, but but it may be the the first right. two paved the way, and yeah. then and then the dam broke. Right. Yeah, and I think Dobie's family justifiably could be a little frustrated because Robinson was in National League, so Dobie really integrated the American League, which is the older league, and. He, he um, had no prep, you know. Uh, Bill Veck signed him, and then he's playing, and and uh, he was rattled by not having a sense of team initially and by the fans because he he'd had no experience with that kind of abuse playing in the Negro Leagues. Mm. Uh, so let me get into the uh, kind of just briefly uh, your biography. So you, uh, I think you were uh, born partially raised in Illinois, then right. your parents moved to Arizona, graduate high school there. Uh, you had a tradition in your family that uh, the, the boys go and play college football. And, and you you followed that. You played BYU uh, football. Yeah, yeah. Um, and But always had an interest in writing. I think you, you say as a very young man you would uh, pound out uh, 10-page novels. <laughs> yeah, I still have the same problem. Yeah. I can't finish. <laughs> <laughs> and they were all a rehash of War of the Worlds, you right. say. Yeah, the, my favorite novel at the time. <laughs> so you uh, so you gave that up for a time, and then you, it came to a point where you say you you 
just what that all just teach. Um, you know, football player and writer aren't compatible. Yeah. But then, then you're you married a, a woman whose family is artistic. Yeah. Well, it was. Uh, you know, my family was is academic. So my brothers, uh, all, there were four of us, four boys in our family, and all got scholarships to play football somewhere. And and which was a good thing because my we couldn't we wouldn't have gone or we if we would have it would have been a different college probably we had no money and my dad had no money, um, but my oldest brother was a physics major, uh, and my next brother was a business major. So that and school wasn't hard for us, but sports was just more important. But we didn't have exposure to the fine arts or those kinds of things. And uh, I think we were all pretty good readers I, in, when we were growing up. But my wife. Uh, her mother was a cello a cello player and actually played when they lived in the East Coast in the Philadelphia Symphony and in Phoenix at the Phoenix Symphony and and the first time I went over to her house I heard um, cello music and coming through the you know the front door when I knocked on it and nobody answered the door so I just knocked a little harder and then her mom opened the door and she wasn't very pleased uh, with me because I'd interrupted a lesson and uh, I learned I was supposed to go around. If I heard if I heard cello music, I was supposed to go around to the back door, not to the front door. <laughs> but her, but I was I didn't understand why she was so upset, uh, and, and because I just didn't get that music's really a serious thing, and that you focus. There's a certain amount of concentration that is a lot like athletics, I suppose. But I didn't at the time. I was just clueless. But in her house, there were paintings. So her two of her, her grandmother and great grandmother on her mother's side were both art- artists. So they studied at Brandywine with the Wyeths there in Delaware. And so her home was full of paintings and had books on the shelves written by her great-great-grandmother and also by friends they'd known. And so it was a whole different environment. And she was a lot more refined than I was. And it just helped me start seeing there's another way to use yourself. Uh, There's a physical one and there's an intellectual creative one too. How did you get into writing uh, uh, in the area of civil rights? And that's an interesting question. I, I think I kind of backed into it unconsciously. So our four children are adopted, and our two youngest are, are half African American. And I think without knowing it, raising them in Utah, I saw um, subtle kinds of racist things and some not so subtle. And as a parent, feeling um, powerless about that, and also as a white parent, feeling stupid about it, not really understanding that. And I think it made me a little more aware of, of those issues than I would have been otherwise. But what really got me going in terms of searching, I had a chance to write a book about an, an African-American writer named Mildred D. Taylor, who is a brilliant writer, won a Newberry for a, a book called Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry. And um, to, to understand her, her and her life, I, I had to start really reading about uh, slave history, African American history, civil rights history, American history, in ways I hadn't before. So when I was learning about her life, she was starting high school in 1955, and so integration had just happened. She was her family had moved to Ohio by then, and she was nervous about, well, what's it going to be like? This school's always been all white. Now, my sister and I are going to be among the only, some of the only black kids in the school. How are we going to be received? All, the, all those kinds of stresses. And then just the stress of entering high school from junior high. But then she said something about, uh, she was also nervous because a kid her age that summer, a kid from Chicago, had been murdered in Mississippi. And I had no idea who she was talking about. And by then I knew that her books were all based on family history or relatives or something. I thought I should just track this down. There's a chance that maybe 
he's some sort of relative or she's him in a book or something. I just should know it. Well, there was no connection except a historical one, but this was the kid Emmett Till. Mm-hmm. And it was my first, and I love history, and and it was my first encounter that I remember anyway with, with his story. Uh, and it was so horrifying uh, for two reasons. Horrifying that I didn't know about it because it was a big moment in American history, but horrifying because of what happened to him. Uh, that that made me interested even more in civil rights. And so the reason I found out about Larry Doby was because of Emmett Till. When I was interviewing his mom, I asked her, who was was he a Cubs or White Sox fan? And she said, White Sox, of course, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and um, so I was researching 55, you know, who would, who would have been on the team when he was listening to the radio and that kind of stuff. And it was a big deal in 55 because they had just signed Doby. They traded for him from the Indians. And I had never, I, like, why is he a big deal? Who's Larry Doby, you know? And so I was tracking that down and, one of those things I'll come back to it later, but so, but it was Emmett, the Emmett Till case that my personal outrage about that and my sense of ignorance about it that made me think there's a big hole in my education mm-hmm. I need to fill. You're listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams, thanks for listening today. My guest for the hour is BYU English professor Chris Crow. He's an award-winning author of books for young adults about the civil rights era. Recently gave a couple of talks on the USU campus in Logan as a part of the USU Department of English Speaker Series. And we talked there briefly about uh, the Emmett Till case. I'll ask Professor Crow when we come back following a break uh, to recount in brief uh, that history, the murder of Emmett Till. More following the break. This is Management Minute by Professor Scott Hammond. Let's get this one right. The group leader called out to her team who was building a complex custom demise. Then she corrected herself. She said, let's get this one righter. Awkward language aside, people who work continuous improvement, lean manufacturing, or enterprise excellence know that every product and every process can be made better. Nothing is ever perfect. They are comfortable with the permanent question, how can I make that better? If you cannot see ways to improve your product or service, ask your customer. If they don't tell you, your competitor might. But by then it might be too late and you'll be out of the game. The Management Minute is brought to you by our members and the USU Shingo MBA program at the John M. Huntsman School of Business, a 15-month graduate degree for executives giving knowledge and skills to leverage the principles and tools of lean continuous improvement. Huntsman.usu.edu. Politics is vicious now, but tried 200 years ago. Abigail Adams on Alexander Hamilton. I have read his heart and his wicked eyes many a time. The very devil is in them. Founding feuds and the art of political reconciliation. Next time on To the Best of Our Knowledge from PRI, Public Radio International. Join us Sunday morning at 9 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. I'm talking with BYU English professor Chris Crow. He's an award-winning author of books for young adults about the civil rights era. He recently gave a couple of talks on the USU campus in Logan as part of the USU Department of English Speakers series. Uh, his books include Mississippi Trial 1955, uh, Getting Away with Murder, the True Story of the Emmett Till Case. Also, Just as Good, How Larry Doby Changed America's Game. His most recent book, historical novel, Death Coming Up the Hill, is about the tumultuous year of 1968. And uh, we, later in the program, we're going to talk about uh, Professor Crow's family. He and his wife have four adopted children, including two daughters of African-American heritage. Uh, He says the family has uh, vigorous discussions about race around the 
dinner table. Uh, right now, as uh, we talked about before the break, we'll uh, get into talking about the uh, Emmett Till case. Let's talk about that. And this connects to uh, very recent uh, news, the, the, the new African Museum of African American yeah. History, and uh, perhaps one of the most famous or, or most reported on artifacts, you call it, is, is Emmett Till's casket yeah. is, is included in the... And reports are, I was reading a, a New York Times article, and there, I think there's three movies coming out in, yeah. in, 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 in production. Uh, so we'll, we will have this history, very important to know. Um, but but this, this particular exhibit, uh, they had concern about that it, it would be too impactful or very impactful for yeah. people, so they wanted to make sure they had people there docents, especially at that exhibit, to, to take people through that emotional journey. It is, it is, um, it is a horrifying moment in, in American history. Maybe you could uh, re- recount for those who don't know, sure. the, the, in brief. So 55, so th- it was, uh, there was a lot of tension right then because 54 had been the Brown versus Board decision from the Supreme Court to force integration of schools. But in 54, the Supreme Court didn't say when, they just said it has to happen. Uh, and they, because they knew the South would have to have some time to swallow it. So in 55, in May of 55, they issued the implementation order called Brown II sometimes uh, that said, now you have to do it with all deliberate speed, which kind of meant, could kind of mean now, and it could kind of mean take your time. But still, in the South, they felt like it means now. And that made people, it really stirred up even more paranoia. And so a kid like Emmett Till, who raised in Chicago, had only visited Mississippi as a child, uh, is visiting relatives down there, and he's used to life in Chicago. That uh, you know, I mean, there's there were still Jim Crow policies in Chicago, but he had relative freedom just because there's so many African Americans, so many places to go and things to do. And he's visiting in the Mississippi Delta, a town of money that has about 70 people. And he, with some cousins, one night are hanging out in front of a store, waiting to go into another town to to a dance, to a place where they could dance, listen to music, and. Uh, he, there's some dispute about what exactly happened, uh, but what we do know is he went into the store, he, and um, the, there was, the only person in there at the time was Carolyn Bryant, the wife of the owner, white woman. And uh, when he left the store, he turned around, he did two things. He said, bye, baby, which even now in Mississippi, you know, kids are taught to t- treat adults, at yes, sir, no, sir, yes, ma'am, even white kids. So that would have been bad for a white kid to do, but then he whistled at Carolyn Bryant. And so his cousins and the local kids with him grabbed him and threw him in a car because they knew trouble will follow immediately. But nothing happened for three days. And that, the reason nothing had happened be, was because her husband was out of town. So as soon as he gets back in, he hears about what this assault on, her, on his wife. And so the challenge is, what are you going to do about it? And so he gets his half-brother. So this is Roy Bryan, a half-brother is J.W. Milam. And at 2 a.m. on Sunday morning, they uh, go out to the house room and stay with his great-uncle, Mose Wright. And pounding the door, Mose Wright knows what this means. You know, he knows there's no protection. This is the South in the 50s. He can't call the police. Didn't have a phone anyway. And so when he answers the door, he sees a flashlight and a pistol. And one guy, they give their names. This is Mr. Bryant. This is Mr. Milam. And they're looking for the boy from Chicago. And so he tries to stall him. They kind of push him aside. He's 64. And they go back and start searching bedrooms. And they find him. At, make him they wake him up, make him get dressed, and drag him out. And that was the end of him. And what we know now uh, is that he, they met up with some other men. There was a night of torture. We don't know exactly when he was killed, but at some point he was killed and his body was thrown in the Tallahatchie River where it was found three days later. Hmm. 
And, and what made it news, it was, so it wouldn't have been news, it was just another lynching. But what made it news is when his body was sent home to Chicago, uh, his mother opened the casket. And, uh, and what she saw, she said, didn't look human. It, it made her sick. Uh, but she also said a mother knows her son, so she knew that was her son's body. And uh, so instead of having the funeral scheduled, she insisted on viewing. And that's that casket that's now in the Smithsonian. And so they laid a, they laid a, a piece of plate glass over the top half, but she didn't allow the mortician to do anything to improve the body because she wanted the world to see what they had done to her son. So that lasted three days. Thousands of people walked by, and, and there's some footage of it, uh, some women collapsing or fainting, and, and uh, there's some photographs taken of his corpse, and they're horrib- it's horrible to see. And that photo uh, was published in Jet Magazine, this black magazine, and seen nationwide. And, uh, but white people heard about it, too, white people who, weren't, who, were, who felt like equal, equality is a good idea. And it, it woke them up because they realized that racism isn't about just separate buses and schools. You know, that I think it was easy to take that maybe if you're a white person thinking, well, you know, but it's not so bad. But when they realized it was a torture and murder of a child, and when they saw the result of it, it woke them up. It even woke up Emmett's mother. She said at one point that I thought I had a pretty good life and that things were getting better. And with the murder of my son, I realized they're not. Mm-hmm. So, so that then there was a trial, which surprised everybody in Mississippi because – White people were never put on trial for crimes against black people, and it seemed unprecedented at the time. And it lasted just five days. The killers were acquitted. They celebrated, but the outrage in reaction to the trial, coupled with a horrible murder, um, I mean, these guys gave a confession later after the trial uh, where they said they did it. Um, but it just became national headlines, and so as the spotlight was turned on the South, especially Mississippi, but all of the South, kind of exposing what's going on there. And so just 100 days later or so, Rosa Parks steps into that spotlight. My view is if if that murder hadn't happened, if there hadn't been such a sensational trial covered by 70 news outlets in a town of 300 people in Sumner where the trial was held, that there would have been no spotlight for Rosa Parks to step into, followed by Martin Luther King Jr. But the moment was right, and she knew it was right. And so that's why they took advantage of the, the news media to have a protest, because then they already had the nation's attention. So in lots of ways, it was, it, it, it was a catalyst for what we know as a modern civil rights movement. It would have happened eventually, sometime. But with the death of Emmett Till and the, and the horrible trial that followed, it was the time was right, the stage was set, and Rosa Parks was ready, and so was Martin Luther King Jr. Why, uh, why for young adults? You, you, many of your books are targeted to to young adults. What, why that particular audience? Well, I, I taught high school for ten years, and the same high school I had attended in Arizona. So I, I think in some ways I'm stuck. In, in, my wife could probably <laughs> give examples of how I'm still a teenager in some ways. Mm. Uh, but I love that. I love that stage of life. It's there's so much learning that's happening, not just book learning, but so much learning goes on, and it's a crossroads in so many ways. Uh, so I, I like writing for that audience because I feel like this is a chance where they can learn things that I should. I wish I had learned when I was that age. But also because Emmett was 14, and there really aren't many civil rights stories. At least there haven't been uh, many stories about the civil rights movement or, or African American history that that focus on a kid, somebody like them. Uh, there are these adult heroes who had roles to play, but not many teenagers. And I mean, and there obviously have been, there have been some, but not many were known. So I felt like to tell the story of a, of a teenager, uh, of something that happened to a teenager that helped change American history, uh, and it's a story that they might more likely relate to than if it's just 
kind of the bigger story of civil rights history. Hmm. Um, it, it, in one respect, it seems like this history is very present. You know, yeah. Black Lives Matter, all the, all, the, all the problems. You know, after the election of President Obama, we I guess some of us thought maybe maybe we're making progress, right? Heading toward a post-racial America. But it, it seems like in, in these last eight years, we've uh, in some ways gone backwards or, or maybe bringing yeah. problems to the surface to, to yeah. maybe try to deal with them. But in, in another way, it, history is always in danger of being forgotten, right? Or do you, right. I guess, is that one impetus for writing these books? Well, that, I think, and history is so big, how can we, we can't tell everything of history. It's be, it's too, there's too much history. So anytime we tell history, we have to be selective and, and uh, this, to decide what part to share. And I think part of our, our natural inclination is we usually share the best parts of our history to inspire, to remind us of our better selves and to inspire us to be, to be better. And so a story like Emmett Till's not, not one that we tell because it's when Americans failed at what, we, what our ideals are. So for me, the history of civil rights, when I was taught, it went from Brown versus Board in 54 to Rosa Parks in 55, and Emmett Till's in the middle but not mentioned. And, uh, and, and I can see why those stories are told because they're, they're not so bad. Rosa Parks, well, she couldn't sit in the front of the bus. You know, well, yeah, that's, that's not great, but it's not bad. And uh, Brown versus Board of Education, well, you know, black kids couldn't go to white schools. Well, yeah, but, but, you know, they're not being tortured or murdered. But Emmett Till was in, in, that, in that horrible image of him is one that um, it's shameful for, for us as a country to own that. And, uh, and so I don't think we should wallow in the shame, but I do think uh, it's good to learn from that. And then the connections, to me, it's sad that there are so many connections today. And Trayvon Martin was one of the early the big ones that was, had lots of parallels, a, a black kid in the wrong place at a bad time. You know, Emmett was in the Deep South when they were fighting mad about Brown versus Board and, um, you know, and paid with his life. Same thing happened with Trayvon Martin. I mean, I'm not sure, I don't know why the environment was dangerous except it was a white neighborhood, but the fact that he was black in a place where they didn't expect black kids to be uh, was fatal for him. And all those, all that have happened since. One of the things that's been interesting since President Obama was elected, even when he was nominated, was hate group enrollments went up. Uh, it was a, it was a, it, it spiked some concerns that people had that we're going to lose our country somehow. And that goes back into the 40s and 50s of the Klan and white citizens councils and those kinds of groups. Um, I, I, and I wonder, and you, you said that you, you felt really bad, horrified, right? That yeah. you, that you had this gap in your knowledge right. about, about Emmett Till. Uh, you're trying to rectify that for others, especially for young people. Do you do you feel like some of these important stories do get lost? They they do get lost, and and uh, the thing I learned with them, the Emmett Till story, for example, was it sure wasn't lost among African Americans. So African American people my age all knew the story. They all they were raised on it, and for for a lot of them, they would say. Something like, I remember when I saw the photo of Emmett Till in Jet Magazine. It was just a moment in time. And the only parallel I have for that is I remember where I was when JFK was killed. But it was this kind of earth-shaking moment. And uh, for African Americans, at least those who had Jet Magazine or had people, family members who did, it became a, 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 a cautionary tale. Uh, don't let this happen to you. Be careful. When, be careful who you talk to or how you act, you know, stuff in the 50s and 60s when African-Americans had to, were kind of under this 
threat all the time, so they had to be careful of how they spoke or whom they spoke to or where they were. Uh, and Emmett Till was a, had a great uh, influence on that generation of people. So probably there are every culture, even every family's got stories that of its own history that are part of the larger fabric of American history, but don't, they don't get shared. Um, and, and I do know that in the last 10 years or so, a lot of other stories have come out about uh, African-American uh, history event, historical events in African-American history that have been impactful and have parallels. And there's a teenager, Claudette Colvin, who was pre-Rosa Parks, but she got arrested for riding in the front of the bus, and, and, uh, but she never made the news, and Rosa Parks did. And other, other examples of that, the, the th- one of the interesting connections for me that I hadn't been aware of, but now it makes a lot of sense, was that the, um, any, any successful protest has to have media attention, otherwise no one can come to their support. So Emmett Till got generated that kind of interest. But what happened was when the movement was fading, when it was losing momentum, uh, it was children who got it back on the front page. So the Birmingham March, when these kids were attacked with dogs, when the kids left school and were fire hose and attacked with dogs, and then in Birmingham, when the uh, 16th Street Baptist Church was bombed, those four little girls were killed. Those two events went put the civil rights movement right back on the front page because th- there were innocents uh, being killed, being harmed, as opposed to uh, troublemaker adults or alleged rapists or thieves or something who are being lynched while well, they deserved that kind of argument. But there's no argument you can make for children being murdered. And so the, out- that, the sad thing is it takes the— it takes a loss of a child to generate outrage. For some, we don't seem to be as sensitive to the loss of an adult the same way. I wonder. I want to talk to you, to you a little bit about uh, standing, standing to write, write books about civil rights. Yeah. I don't know if you've ever gotten pushback. Uh, the vast majority of people would say this is a great service you're providing, uh, telling young people about uh, about these events. But you're a, a white guy in Provo, very, very white Utah. I don't know if you've ever gotten any any pushback I saying, have. "Hey, do you do you do you have standing? Do you know what's your standing to yeah. write about these things?" So uh, it was, you know, it certainly was on my mind because I thought, well, "Who am I to write this story?" And uh, because it's not, Emma, it's not related to me. Uh, and I knew his mother. His mother ended up publishing a memoir after she died, but she'd been working on it for quite a long time, and I knew that. And that's her story to tell. And so I didn't want to infringe on or appropriate a story that wasn't mine. And, and so one of the things that drove me to do is to do as much homework as I could. And there weren't a lot of sources. There are a lot more sources now than there were then available on the case uh, because the FBI had reopened it in 2004. So, But I thought I need to do my very best, especially with historical fiction, to be fair to what we know and to represent things the best I can. But I was certainly after um, my novel came out in 2002, I was in New York City and uh, talking to a high school group, and they're, and they're probably 80% African-American kids, maybe 10% Latino, and a handful of white kids in there. And and so I talked. I told them the story of Emmett Till and about writing the book, and and uh, there's a Q&A afterwards, and in the back there was this kid who was trying to raise his hand, and the kids around like, and I kept thinking, okay, here it comes, you know, and so this this big guy, this kid stands up in the back, his name's Chris, I still remember, his name's my name, and he said, I don't mean to be rude. <laughs> But what's a white guy like you doing writing this book? And, I, and I'd thought about that a lot, so I felt like I had an answer. And I, so I didn't mind his question at all. It's a fair question. And my, my 
response at the time came after lots of reflection, and, and there are two reasons. One is nobody was writing about it. So I could wait for someone else to write it, but what if they never do? And it's a story that needs to be told. And so somebody had to do it, and I'm, I was willing. And if there are flaws in it, it's, they're my fault, but it, at least it helps get the story out. But my second answer, I think, is a better one, is that it's not the Emmett Till story is not just an African-American history story. It's a story of American history, and we all it's a part of all of our lives. It, it shaped the country that we're in right now. Uh, the results of his murder and the reaction to the trial shaped our country, changed the course of our country. So, of course, it's an African-American story, and of course, it's a part of African-American history, but it's a part of American history, too. And, and so I feel like I have some claim to try to tell that story. And others have, since, his cousin, one of the cousins who was um, in the house when he was kidnapped, Simeon Wright, has published a book a couple of years ago about his recollection of the events of the time. And, and uh, the, the interesting thing is that the world expert on the Emmett Till case, the world's expert is a guy named Devery Anderson, who lives in Salt Lake City, a white guy. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. And he, he just published a year ago the definitive uh, work. Uh, he's a historian uh, on the case. And he'd spent 18 years about uh, study, researching, interviewing, tracking down every shred of stuff. I've known Devery for a long time. So he's been interested in the case for more than 20 years, way before I even knew about it. And then working on this book for about 18. So it was published by University of Mississippi. HBO's bought the film rights. One of the films is, mm-hmm. is going to be based on his book. And it's, it's an exhaustive uh, co- collection of information on the case. And it's a remarkable work because anything, any shred that was uh, questioned or where we weren't quite sure about this, he doesn't say this is the answer, but he, ha- he pre- pre- presents all the available evidence, and then lets the reader draw a conclusion based on these kinds of things. And there are some things that go counter to what the family has said in the last few years of what, what might have happened. And, mm. and uh, he clarifies some things that never were really quite made known. It was such an emotional case that there were a lot of things said, and a lot of people remember things that never happened. When I was doing research, some woman had said, oh, I remember him until was standing on a street corner in Jackson, Mississippi, and whistled at a white woman. I think, well, Jackson's a long ways from money, and I mean, it wasn't even close to the same story. But So Devery cut through all that stuff and um, did a ton of interviews with Emmett's mother, Emmett's mother before she died, and the cousins, and uh, FBI agents, and anybody who was alive in the last 18 years who had some connection to the case, he's tracked them down and interviewed them. So it's a monumental, monumental work. Mm. Well, that half of that is how I remembered it. Until you reminded me, I, I remembered him standing on the street corner. Yeah, instead of in a store. Yeah. So, uh, uh, wh- why do you think we got three films? You know, no films <laughs> for a long time. Now we got three films coming out about about Emmett Till. You know, it's it's uh, so the I wrote this novel first, so Mississippi Trial, nineteen fifty five, came out in two thousand two. It's historical fiction. A white kid's visiting Mississippi when all this stuff happens. And when I was done with that book, I had all the re- all the historical research, and I thought, well, you know, I, they're probably. I could probably write a nonfiction account of this for teenagers because there are also some great images that I've come across that would be that bring it that make it real, and uh, so that came out the following year, and in the year that it came out, two thousand three, uh, it all, there was a film that came out called The Murder of Emmett Till that was done by PBS. It's a, it's a, it was a brilliant uh, film, and it debuted at, Sun, at the Sundance Film Festival, and then it aired on Martin Luther King Day of 2003. So the film, my book, and then a, a white English professor down in Alabama, again, a guy named Christopher Mitris, published a, a book that year as well called uh, The Murder of Emmett Till, a Documentary History, where he just collected 
uh, like Eleanor Roosevelt's editorial about it and Faulkner's condemnation of the killing and all those kind of things in one book. So the three of us, the filmmaker, Chris Mitris and I were working on the same stuff, using the same sources. None of us knew the other existed until the film came out. And it was almost like it's finally time. Uh, independent of each other, I think we each realized there's, it's time. And so it's been about 10 years or so, and then Devery's book comes out last summer. So it came out in 2015, summer of 2015, and um, reopened the issue. But I think now it's so much more timely socially with what's going on in American society that filmmakers are seeing the, the possibility of this is a big story. It's not, just a, it's not just a moment in American history. It's a big moment in American history, just like 42 with Jackie Robinson. And uh, it, it speaks to so much tension that exists today, sadly, that still exists today, that it's another moment that that zeitgeist is here, you know, another chance to tell the story. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, and I'm talking with BYU English professor Chris Crow. He is an award-winning author of books for young adults about the civil rights era, and he recently gave a couple of talks on the USU campus in Logan as part of the USU Department of English Speakers Series. We'll continue this discussion following a break. We're, we'll get into talking about uh, uh, Chris Crow's interesting family situation. He and his wife are uh, the uh, proud parents of adopted children, uh, including two African-American daughters. So we'll get into talking about what the discussion around the dinner table is like uh, in his uh, family and much more following the break. As a way of introducing you to Utah Projects and people that empower, UPR has produced a series of radio programs. Hi, I'm Candy Carter Olson, and I'm an assistant professor of media and society in the journalism and communication department at Utah State University. And I'm inviting you to listen to Objectified, More Than a Body, right here Tuesday afternoons at 4.30 and Wednesday mornings at 7.41. To listen to past programs, go to upr.org. Objectified, More Than a Body is a Utah Public Radio original series. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Global Village Gifts annual Nativity Night event. Friday, November 11th from 6 to 9 p.m. at 69 East, 100 North in Logan. Featuring nativities from around the world, all handmade under the principles of fair trade. Information at globalvillagegifts.org. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We've reached our last segment with BYU English professor Chris Crow. He is an award-winning author of books for young adults about the civil rights era. He recently gave a couple of talks on the USU campus as a part of the USU Department of English Speaker Series. Uh, his books include Mississippi Trial 1955, uh, also Getting Away with Murder, the true story of the Emmett Till case, uh, Just as Good, How Larry Doby Changed America's Game, and Death Coming Up the Hill. Uh, this is our last segment now with uh, Chris Crow. You can reach the program here by email to upraxcess at gmail.com. You have an interesting personal experience. I'm, I'm wondering this, this intersection. Uh, you mentioned you have uh, two children, that adopted children, right. who have African-American heritage right. background. Um, I think you said they, they've encountered some racism. Mm -hmm. um, wonder, you know, speaking as a father, as the white father of these, <laughs> these kids, um, where do you think that that racism comes from? Is it ignorance? Is it malevolent racism? What uh, you know? And this is, yeah. is this is here in Utah, right? I assume. Right? Yeah, it is. I don't think it's malevolence. I think uh, 
I mean, there may have been a few cases of that, but I, I think most of it's ignorance. And I, you know, I, I'm ignorant. I, I, I still remember my dad in the 19th, my dad was a Kennedy Democrat. I mean, he loved the Kennedys and JFK. When he died, it was a, our family mourned. Um, and I remember him, my father railing against racism, railing against it. And uh, saying, I, you know, well, we should adopt a black kid just to make a, st-. you know, I mean, he was really worked up about it. And as a little kid, you know, I was, that's just how it was. You know, that's just my dad. I didn't think it was right or wrong. It was just how it was. But I also remember as I was getting into, into sports, so junior high and high school, my dad just saying matter of factly, not, not, not racistly, but matter of factly, well, you'll know there'll never be a black quarterback in the NFL or even in college because they're just not smart enough. And it was just tossed off as if, well, everybody knows that. And uh, not in a mean way, but just kind of, now I know it in kind of a stupid way or a limited, it was a limited way of thinking. And he said other kinds of things like that, that when I look back on it now, I think, well, he grew up in a generation where that's what they were taught. That's what everybody said. That's what everybody believed, except for the few people who were outside of that, a few white people who were outside of that maybe who had a better, a bigger perspective. So... Um, with my children, I think that some of their some of the kids they've interacted with never knew a kid with dark skin. They never had a chance to encounter someone like that, and and they'd they'd heard things from their parents or from other people that maybe gave them a misguided perspective of who's who and who matters. And uh, I mean, there were only a couple of things, times, events I think were really cruel, intentionally cruel, racist things. Most of it were slights and um, uh, encounters that, and, and what it taught me as a parent was that it was the helplessness of being other than white. So uh, my youngest daughter, Joanne, was, was an incredible athlete. And when I was coaching her in junior jazz games, uh, sometimes she'd be the only, often she's the only black kid on the floor, but really good, <laughs> I thought. And uh, every once in a while there'd be games where she'd get called for way more than her share of fouls or traveling or whatever, you know. And, and as a coach, you know, it made me mad. But as a dad, I, I thought, is the guy racist? You know, is the, is the ref racist or is he, maybe he's just incompetent? But I realized I can't know. I can't go ask him after the game. So are you just incompetent or are you a racist? Uh, and I realized that what, what I realized then is that if I were African American and get pulled over by the police on I-15, I I don't know if is he pulling me over because I'm going too fast, or is it because of the color of my skin, or if I'm African American and get a job, is it because I deserve it, or am I a token, or if I don't get a job, is it because of racism or because I'm not qualified? And it's 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 the unanswerable question, and I'd never it I'd never entertained it in my life because white people don't think about that. They think if I get pulled over, the guy's a jerk. If I don't get a job, the guy's a jerk. If I get a job, of course I deserved it. But African-Americans or other minorities in the United States, that's a question that's on their mind but with no answers. It's impossible to know mm-hmm. why things go the way they do. Uh, and you hear about African-American parents having that talk with their yeah. kids, right? Here's how to stay safe. It's a, it's, and, and then, you know, most of us decry that, that that right. conversation has to happen. Do you ever think that you would have to have such a conversation with your We've had with those your, conversations. You've had that conversation. Yeah, yeah. We've had them, and it's it's sad. And it wasn't something that I, when they were growing up, I wasn't on my radar. I didn't. I just assumed my children are my children. I love them. I'm their father. My wife's their mother. 
we raised them as we raised all of our kids and uh, with the expectations that we have that they're going to be treated like everybody else, you know. And then as they got older and those things, they weren't being treated like everybody else. Then it's, then gradually we started to learn because we didn't have parents who could have taught us that this is how the world works. Uh, so we had to learn. We learned too late, I think. I, I wish I'd been more attuned to things as a father sooner because I think I could have prepared my daughters better for the world that they're living in. Do you, uh, I'm guessing you, you think about this, um, you know, with, with you know, African-American children, that you want them to know African-American history, you want them to know culture, you want them to know heritage, and and then do you, do you feel equipped? I guess you're more equipped than many white parents would be in that situation, <laughs> having written, you know, yeah. about civil rights era, but uh, how do you approach that? Well, I guess I, you know, I think for my books, I hope they work two ways. For some kids... Uh, and this isn't my idea, this metaphor, but I think it's a great one. For some kids who read one of my books, if they're white kids, it's kind of a window into something maybe they don't know, into a culture or way of living or con- problems they don't know about, but they can look in on and maybe realize, wow, not everybody's life is like mine. For other kids, the, the books are mirrors. It reflects an experience they already know and reinforces that I'm not the only one then who has these concerns or has these troubles because other other people do too. And so... I'm hoping that, I mean, anybody who writes a book for teenagers, I think you hope that it's something they want to read, first of all, but that they come away with something more than just passing time reading a good story. And for me, it's about um, things that matter, and race in America today still matters a lot. Your, I think your latest book is, is Death Coming Up the Hill. That's, right. the, that's mm-hmm. the latest one. I just want to read part of the synopsis. It's 1968. The war is not foreign to 17-year-old Ash. His dogmatic racist father married his passionate peace activist mother when she became pregnant with him. And ever since, the couple, like the situation in Vietnam, has been engaged in, uh, quote, a senseless war that could have been prevented, end quote. Uh, when his high school uh, history teacher dares to teach political realities of war, Ash grows to better understand the situation in Vietnam, his family, and the wider world around him. That's an interesting way to frame that whole whole era, race and war. Yeah. Well, 68, so the, the book said in 1968, and it was, you know, I was alive in 68. I, I was stupid in 68. I wasn't paying attention very well. But uh, when I was going back and learning about that moment in American history, it's amazing that we've held together as a country. There were, Vietnam was like the steady background static, but everything else, Nixon was elected, the uh, Democratic Convention in Chicago, student protests on campus taking over university offices, um, race riots, the Miss America pageant, feminism, all these things, uh, peace protests. It was uh, the murder of Martin Luther King Jr. and Bobby Kennedy. These were big, it was just like one thing after another. And then the death count, 68 was the bloodiest year of all in Vietnam. And so the death count every week was like another, it was a steady, persistent, bad thing, no matter what else was happening on top of all the other bad things that were going on. So I wanted to put a kid in the middle of that, a kid who was like me, stupid, uh, just not paying attention, who's forced to face the reality of the world's not the way I think it is. It's not a nice, tidy place. It's a complicated uh, sometimes risky place. I wonder, you know, as you were describing this, I was comparing today to back to 60, and in some ways we're better off, right? But yeah. it, in, it, sometimes it feels like we just are making no progress. And uh, and if we can't even talk about these issues, 
which sometimes it seems like we can't, then how do we make progress? I wonder what your thoughts are. It is hard talking about these things. And, and uh, you know, my father, at the end of his life, uh, he died when I was writing that first book about Emmett Till. He, his attitude had changed. It was a 180. And I remember arguing with him about race and what people are capable of. And he just couldn't be budged. And I, you know, obviously I, I couldn't be budged uh, either. And I just was one. I, I was thinking, what happened to my dad? You know, what, what in his life? He was a good man. He loved his kids. He loved his grandchildren. Uh, he, he loved people. But some something happened where he, his worldview, especially regarding race, had taken a real uh, right turn. And uh, it was we couldn't talk about it because it was so strongly felt on both for both of us that it quickly became emotional and then it was then neither one of us was listening and i think with issues of race religion anything that politics now anything that we have really strong feelings about partly because of the fears that are behind that concern of well what if what if this doesn't or what if it does then uh, suddenly because we're so deeply invested in it, it's hard to talk clearly and it's hard to listen to the other people's viewpoint because we don't want to think of some other reality because we're afraid of that reality. We're hoping to have something that we f- we're familiar with. Do you have conversations in your family? I don't, I don't know how old your daughters are now. They're in their thirties. In their thirties, do yeah. you have conversations in the you know around the dinner table? We do. <laughs> we, do. we do. I have a son who's really inflammatory that way. Uh, in, in a in a loving brother, we have, I have three daughters and a son, and he uh, he stirs the pot. You know, he likes to get us going and and usually usually it's something either politics or race he'll bring up something and he's he's as open-minded as i am but i think he likes to, he likes to engage it orally through arguing and so he'll raise an issue and not necessarily endorse it but to be the devil's advocate i guess most of the time and we always take the bait <laughs> i mean mm-hmm. we've known him all his life but we always take the bait and so uh, we've had a lot of discussions about racism and current events and politics and education and all these kinds of issues that inflame people pretty quickly. And probably if someone listened to snippets of our conversations, they would think, that Crow family, mm-hmm. <laughs> they're out of control. But in reality, I think it's it's our way maybe of when we have dinner on Sundays, we're all around the table. It's our way of talking about these things and realizing that we're all okay. You know, we're not, we're not, we're not on the same place maybe in every issue, but... We still love each other, and we're okay. We can, and the fact that we can talk and argue about these things, and still love each other, is evidence that at least our little family is okay that way. Uh, finally, is there what? What are you working on next? What's uh, <laughs> what's what's coming up? You know, I, I I've what I'd like to do, and I, what I've been trying to figure out is to do a couple more books after '68. So one in '69 and one in '70, because those years had their own big events. So. 69 was Woodstock and the Manson murders, and Vietnam still was going, but not as bad as 68. And then 70 was Kent State and other big events, um, Pentagon Papers, those kinds of things. So I'd like to figure out how to how, how to tell the stories, not necessarily as sequels, but as just companions to that book in 68. Another book I've been working on for more than 20 years that I obviously I don't know how to write it, but I, there's a a great historical account of a, a 14-year-old boy who sailed from England on a privateer in 1806, I think it was, and 
uh, attacked Spanish settlements in South America, whaled in the South Pacific. Then he got marooned in Tonga in the South Pacific, and the Tongans attacked the ship, burned it, slaughtered almost all the crew, and he survived. By then, he was almost 16. And so here's a kid, an English kid in Tonga, you know, 10,000 miles from home with no way home because the ship's ashes at the bottom of the bay. And the king adopted him. And this was the king who was like Kamehameha in Hawaii who unified Tonga, had all these islands that were interwarfare, and he eventually helped unify the Tongan islands. And he protected this kid and raised him as a prince, and he learned Tongan. And uh, this was pre—it was pre— it was still a Stone Age culture, so there was no writing. Not even the concept of symbology uh, was not prevalent. And Mariner, he had been the ship's clerk, accidentally introduced the concept of reading and writing to the king. And uh, because Tonga was such a hierarchical society, that trickled down eventually, uh, pretty quickly, uh, because the king saw value in it. And so it's a great, it's a great adventure story. But to Tongans, Will Mariner is famous because. He brought literacy, like Prometheus kind of, he brought literacy to the Tongan Islands. He eventually escaped and went back to England and wrote a, an account, or it was an as-told-to account. So I'd love to figure out how to tell that. I've written it as nonfiction. I've written it as historical fiction. And I love the story. I've been to Tonga. I've been to the island where a ship was burned. Uh, I'd love to figure out how to tell it. I've been through millions of, well, not millions. I've been through dozens of drafts on it, and maybe I'll figure it out one day. Very good. We'll look for that. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Tom. It's been a pleasure. We've been talking with Chris Crow, who's BYU English professor. He's also an award-winning author of books for young adults about the civil rights era. He recently gave uh, talks on the USU campus as a part of the USU Department of English Speaker Series. You can find out more about him at his website, which is chriscrow.com. We hope you'll join us uh, tomorrow. My guest is uh, Jennifer Mansfield, and uh, she wrote her master's thesis on names. What names do we give our children um, here's the headline on an article she wrote. Odd baby names show Mormons are unique, like everyone else. We're going to talk about what's in a name. That's tomorrow. Hope you'll join me then. Thanks for listening today. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, also heard at upr.org.